Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. With me again today is Dr. Stefan Hussey. If you haven't listened to our first episode with Dr. Hussey, all about his travels throughout the world, his background, and his thoughts on healthcare reform, go back and listen to that. It's a really awesome episode. We also talked a little bit about his book, his new book called Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. Great read. Highly recommend you jump over to Amazon right now and get yourself a copy of that, whether it's digital or physical. For more on Dr. Hussey, you can go over to his Instagram at Dr. Stefan Hussey. You can kind of click on his bio, check out some of his posts. He's got a lot of great content and he puts out a lot of different links to pretty much everything he's done from podcasts, books he's written, blog posts, his own uh, health coaching and consultation business. He's got everything right there. So make sure you go and check that out. With that, Dr. Hussey, welcome back. Excited to have you on the show again. Yeah, good to be here. So when it comes to cardiovascular disease, which has kind of become your kind of subspecialty in a way, the numbers that we see in America are absolutely crazy. Have there been any kind of real numbers or statistics that kind of stick in your head about how bad our situation is right now? Yeah, I mean, well, I think that one thing that's interesting is, uh, I mean, I, I was just, you know, we have to train and, and we have to get CPR certified every few years, you know, as physicians. Yep. And, uh, and so we, you know, we were doing that the other day and I realized, you know, for the first time I've done it many times, but for the first time that like, they're so focused on cardiac events, like that is like, they're, they teach you how to like, you know, help someone who's choking and that kind of stuff. But most of the time it like, they're so focused on cardiovascular events. So if that doesn't tell you how prevalent it is and how much of a problem it is, um, that that's the, pretty much the only thing they're, they're teaching you in an emergency situation, um, then, then I don't know what else does, but, you know, to put numbers on it, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's estimated, I think by like 2030 or 2035, it's estimated that like um, more than 130 million people will have some form of heart disease, which is, you know, a third of the population yeah. uh, in the United States. Uh, and so, so that's pretty shocking, you know, and that's just one chronic disease. You know, there's multiple chronic diseases that people have, but a third of them will have some sort of cardiovascular disease. And, and I think the real, uh, the, one of the biggest issues with that, you know, aside from people living poor quality of life and that kind of stuff is how much it costs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like 300 and $330 billion a year spent on, on heart disease and managing and treating heart disease in the Western medical setting, which is an astronomical amount. Uh, you know, imagine how much money would be saved if we were getting the correct advice uh, and understood, you know, exactly why it was happening and, uh, and uh, were able to mitigate that or at least lessen the effects of heart disease on people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And one of the key problems with heart disease is it doesn't usually present alone. Very few people come in and they have cardiovascular disease. They often have type two diabetes. They often have obesity. They often have all these different comorbidities that present with it. And now you're not just treating one thing, you're treating a lot. And oftentimes you don't see them walk into the clinic right when things are starting to get bad. It's often, you know, things are really bad right now. Kind of that dumpster fire analogy, you know, everything is burning up. Uh, and you know, it kind of concerns me too, that we're talking about this now post pandemic, because pre pandemic, you know, we were not in great shape. But what has been the effect of, you know, sitting around for 15, 16 months at home, people not getting out, people not doing anything, you know, I'm 
kind of been worried that the outcome of this is going to be worse than, you know, some of the side effects of the disease itself, the virus, which is not to discount the severity of the virus, but we look at the statistics, not to get too caught up in the numbers, but by the year 2048, a study from John Hopkins had predicted that we would see over 95% of Americans become obese. And now we look at the numbers from the recent studies from Harvard, and we're exceeding the rate that that study put out. We're moving faster towards that quota. So people are you know, really struggling to keep their weight in control. And if you struggle with your weight, your heart's going to kind of suffer as a result. It's got a lot more tissue to feed and it's got to work extra hard. Uh, so have you kind of had any thoughts or kind of perspectives on what you think we're going to be looking at here post pandemic as far as healthcare goes? Yeah, um, I've actually put a lot of thought into, you know, this connection between poor metabolic health and, and worse outcomes with COVID. I'm actually giving a talk on it in October um, at the at a chiropractic nutrition conference. Um, and uh, yeah, there's this huge connection between, you know, things like diabetes and heart disease and, and hypertension and worse outcomes with infections. And we've known that there's, there's plenty of studies that have illustrated that with H1N1 and, and all these different flus that have that come around. Um, and so it wasn't really acted upon. Um, we've seen mm -hmm. that correlation and we never, we didn't really learn from it. And then something like this comes along and, you know, it really exposes that. Um, because there's, there's, there's a study out there that uh, looked at different uh, uh, biomarkers in people uh, in a very big population, and it found that um, only about 12% of the population is metabolically healthy. Um, and I, when I say metabolically healthy, I say like, I mean, like your body is able to take the food you eat and process it in a way that doesn't harm you, your metabolism is working optimally. Um, so 88% of the population is would be at risk for worse outcomes with infection because of that. And the reason that is, is because all these diseases are driven by what's called insulin resistance. Yep. Uh, and so things that cause insulin resistance, you know, are, are many. Um, but when your body is insulin resistant, insulin is, is necessary, not just for taking sugar out of the blood and putting it into um, cells. It does many things before that, but it's also a, a signaling molecule to a lot of different things in the body. It signals to the endothelial cells and lining the arteries. Um, but it's also, uh, it also um, activates immune cells. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if, you're, if your body is insulin resistant, those immune cells are insulin resistant too. And so when your body is trying to activate that immune system, if it's resistant to the signal that's activating it, then you're not going to get a very robust um, immune response. Uh, and that's exactly what we see with people who struggle with infection is they get this, this um, initial immune response, but they never get the backup um, antibody response because it just has trouble coordinating that because that's what's uh, activated by insulin. And so insulin resistance is driving this huge, you know, epidemic of heart disease and, and diabetes and obesity and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it's also what makes us so prone to these things like that. And so um, if, if anything, you know, if, if we fail to learn that from, from this pandemic, then I think that we failed in general um, as far as success as, as, as learning from this pandemic in general. No, for sure. I like how you bring that up. And insulin resistance really ties into another topic I like to look at called systemic inflammation. Basically, if you have insulin resistance and you have some of these comorbidities, odds are you have inflammation throughout your body, not just in one region. And when you couple high levels of inflammation throughout the body with overactive immune system, you end up with 
kind of like what you talked about uh, in our Monday episode there, autoimmune things like type one diabetes, the body starts breaking itself down and attacking itself because that's what it thinks it needs to do in that moment. So it's kind of going back to these kind of complex signaling mechanisms and understanding that if you don't have an optimal pathway, things are going to kind of get out of a line for lack of a better way to put it. And one small change, even with something just like insulin is going to drive so many different changes down the chain from there. So I think that's really uh, key and a huge point there. And that's kind of how in your book, you talk about how cardiovascular disease has kind of been coming for centuries. It hasn't been something that just happened overnight. We woke up and it happened. Um, so can you kind of touch a little bit on how something like insulin resistance has kind of developed over a longer course and time period? And it's not just something that we can blame on like high sugar foods and artificial sweeteners that have come about in the last 40 years. Yeah. So I, I, um, when I was searching for answers, as far as health goes, um, it was when I started studying evolution that really, um, gave, provided me answers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, in my book, I, I, I start with a, I, I take it back all the way up to like the organ origins of life, yep. um, because there are things that happened during this process from the origins of life, all the way through the evolution of modern humans, um, certain things that we can pick out that tell us, um, or give us clues, give us insights into what we need to be focused on today. And so one of those things is, is um, like mitochondrial health. Yep. Uh, so, so basically, you know, multicellular organisms didn't really happen until single cell organisms like, you know, microbes and things joined together with these other microbes that were better at using oxygen. And those have become what we now call mitochondria today. And there's plenty of evidence that suggests that mitochondria were once on their own. There's actually, um, there's actually mitochondria on their own in our bodies. Um, they really? found them in the bloodstream. Yeah. Huh, that's um, interesting. They're just out there doing their own thing, you know? Um, but they're also in cells and they allow the cells to use oxygen. Um, and so that uses of oxygen is what allows us to be very efficient or what allows us to be very efficient, um, you know, metabolizers. Uh, and so, the, you know, the very origins of, of multicellular life um, clue us into some things that are happening today, because, you know, from that time, um, you know, we get more and more complex organisms forming. Um, eventually we get, um, you know, uh, vertebrates uh, and then we get the reptiles and then we get, we get plants, then we get, you know, fish and the reptiles and then, um, and then eventually mammals and those mammals become humans. And so throughout that time, especially, especially when we look at, you know, the evolution of humans, um, it, there was no modern day processed foods um, mm -hmm. during the, you know, when, when humans, modern day humans first evolved and from about, you know, uh, I'd say, I, I, I could even say up to like 200 years ago, you know, um, yes, there was a big shift in, in, in what we ate maybe 10 to 12,000 years ago when we started farming, eating more, um, you know, crops and, and grains and, and things like that. Um, but the, the biggest shift, I think, is when we started not just producing those lower quality foods when farming, but then processing the crap out of those foods oh, and making sure. them even worse, right? Um, and so the point there is that our, our metabolism evolved a certain way, and it was that way for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so, and then in a very short evolutionary speaking amount of time, we went from, you know, relying on those foods, our metabolism evolved to do those things to all of a sudden having to deal with 
these very concentrated sources of energy, these very processed foods. Uh, and so that could be things like, you know, processed grains, processed sugars, vegetable oils, um, that, those types of things combined with a lot of other things in our environment that are also triggering, you know, insulin resistance and inflammation and things like that. Um, but when we, when we purely talk about metabolism, I think it boils down to those things, especially vegetable oils. And if you look at um, when vegetable oil started becoming something that was in the food supply, you know, about a hundred years ago, um, and you look at the correlation between that and chronic diseases, whether it's obesity, whether it's heart disease, it correlates, you know, directly. Now it's just a correlation. Um, so we can't say that it proves causation, but it's a pretty interesting one that needs to be paid attention to. For sure. And when you bring up vegetable oils, I automatically think of oxidation and inflammation because vegetable oils, whether it's straight vegetable oil blend, canola oil, palm oil, whichever we're talking about here, they're so high in what we call omega-6 fatty acids that refers to a certain structure of the fat chain itself. And we've known pretty much right along that these are not a good thing. Everyone's kind of said omega-3, good. Eat fish, eat grass-fed pasture-raised meats. We look at trends from places like Italy where, you know, Mediterranean diet, high fish consumption, and they tend to be pretty healthy as a result. We don't often think of vegetable oil as the pinnacle of health. And yet, for some reason right now, if you look at marketing trends in our country, a lot of the products that we're promoting as healthy, um, like these plant-based burgers and plant meats, one of the first ingredients in them every time is vegetable oil, palm oil, something like that. So it's kind of ironic to me that something that we know kind of attacks our body at that mitochondrial level is being promoted as a health product or a healthy alternative to things. And I can't quite wrap my head around why that is. Like, yes, it's plant-based, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's automatically better for us, right? Yeah. Well, the original thing was that they, that those, these polyunsaturated fats, these, these um, vegetable oils or margarines or things like that, they lowered cholesterol. Yep. Um, and that's because they compete with cholesterol for absorption in the, in the gut. And so we get a lower amount of cholesterol absorbed and we're absorbing phytosterol, which is the plant fat, mm -hmm. um, which plants use, you know, and we can use that, but it's not good for us um, to use a lot of it. And yeah, everybody talks about omega-6, omega-3 and you know, how um, our omega-6s are way too high. And then they say, okay, we got to take all these omega-3 supplements. And I would say, well, actually we need to decrease the amount of omega-6s we're eating. We need, we need a good ratio and we don't need to try and fix the ratio by jamming in a bunch of omega-3s and still consuming a bunch of omega-6. Let's make a good ratio because omega-6s are necessary. They're very important for health. They play, you know, a role for what we do need an inflammatory reaction to happen in the body. But when we get them in the amounts that people are usually getting them, that becomes a big problem. And they, they directly break our metabolism um, from what I've seen. For sure, for sure. And um, I like how you said too, the omega-6 kind of impacts the cholesterol a little bit. That's why we first jumped there. But you would think we've done a lot more research lately to kind of find that just because you eat a high cholesterol diet doesn't necessarily mean that your cholesterol score is going to be very high. So for example, most of my followers know I eat a lot of eggs but I eat high quality eggs. They're pasture raised chickens. They, you know, roam free. I get the good ones, but I eat five or six of these a day. So you look at the cholesterol intake and it's like three or 400% the daily recommended value. And yet my cholesterol scores fine. So it's kind of ironic how we get caught up in these very 
kind of small details sometimes. And we say, oh, well, you know, this competes with cholesterol. It's going to lower cholesterol. That's a good thing. And yet we don't often look at some of the other data and say, okay, well, people that eat a lot of foods that are fried, for example, in these vegetable oils tend to have higher cholesterol scores than people who don't eat fried foods. Why is that? Um, so I think that that's kind of an interesting point. And we could probably talk at length about yeah. the role <laughs> of cholesterol, um, but kind of pulling back to mitochondria a little bit more, because I know that's kind of a big point that you like to focus in on too, is the metabolic health and the me metabolic chain, so to speak. Um, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, it seems like everything we do right now is attacking our mitochondria, not just from a dietary perspective, but a lifestyle perspective. People are sitting down, people are sedentary, people aren't moving around and exercising, expending energy like humans were meant to do evolutionarily. Um, there was a Ben Greenfield podcast, actually, I listened to a while back. I forget the guy's name he had on. He was kind of a ancestral kind of guy. Um, and he studied different archaeological and paleontology paleontological evidence of our ancestors. And he said, yeah, the hunting bows they used had the equivalent of a 120 pound draw weight. And this is a long bow. And I stopped and thought about that. And I'm thinking, how many people do you know right now that are currently in the shape to pull a bow back with a 120 pound draw weight, hold it there for about eight to 10 seconds, hold it steady while they can aim it and then let it go. I mean, the yeah. evolutionarily mismatching that we have going on in our kind of species right now is concerning. Um, mm -hmm. So are there any other kind of lifestyle factors that you've kind of studied up on or looked into that kind of throw that metabolic health out of, out of whack, out of line, for lack of a better way to put it? Yeah. So with metabolic health, you want, you want, you know, um, optimally functioning mitochondria, because those yep. are the, the structures in our cells that allow us to use oxygen and use substrates from the foods that we eat, you know, you know, the energy and the chemical bonds from the foods we eat um, and, and make our currency of energy that keeps us alive. Yep. Uh, and so keeping those mitochondria functioning and able to use oxygen is very, very important. Uh, and so things that we can do or things that I guess in our environment that, you know, damage that mitochondria, um, one, is metabolizing the wrong foods. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this seems to be directly linked in, in my head uh, from what I've seen to vegetable yep. oils. And, and when we metabolize those, it sends signals to our bodies that break our metabolism. And so that's one way that those mitochondria can be almost divorced from their, their natural way of functioning. Um, but then there's also external things um, that you know, can then get, get into the cells. Um, and these things come from our environment. Uh, so these can be like toxin exposure mm -hmm. um, and the, the different man-made chemicals that we're exposed to and the heavy metals and things like that. It could be psychological stress because we are very surrounded with uh, a bunch of, I would call them unnatural modern day stresses um, that our, our physiology is not quite equipped for. Um, it is things like um, inactivity uh, and just not, you know, not uh, stimulating the body to that extent. Um, and not getting the hormetic stresses, which is like a stress that ends up being a net positive um, from that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it could be things uh, like uh, endotoxins. Um, mm -hmm. So when we have people have leaky gut or poor dental health, they can get endotoxins leaking into the bloodstream. Um, and all these things can, can, can directly damage 
uh, the mitochondria. And when the mitochondria is damaged, uh, the body cannot use oxygen uh, to, to make ATP because those are the structures that allow it to do that. And so when that happens, the cell has to revert to what we call fermentation. Yep. Um, and so fermentation is something that will get us some ATP, but not very much. Uh, it also creates more uh, lactic acid in the cells, which is, you know, the thing that, uh, that makes your muscles burn when you work out, which short term is a, is a good thing. It's going to create a stimulus that creates something stronger, but if it's what your cells doing all the time, that's not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we have broken metabolism from all these different stimuli, um, that's, that's what happens. It happens at a cellular level, and then it just represents itself at a, um, a whole body level. When you end up being fatigued, um, you end up having inflammation, autoimmunity, all these different things. Um, but it starts from, from damage to those, those structures that allow us to use oxygen, those mitochondria. Right. And like you just said, it's kind of a complex thing because of the way we're living right now. We're using products that did not exist hundreds of years ago. And one of the things you mentioned that really stuck out to me was the heavy metal presence. Heavy metals are in everything right now. Like go look at your deodorant or any of your, you know, health and beauty and skincare products. And you look at the list and it's like, wait a second, we put aluminum in that? Why is that in there? And then we think about, well, you know, our skin tends to be pretty absorbent. We absorb aluminum when, anytime we put deodorant on. Well, if you live in an area where you're putting a lot of deodorant on, guess what? Your heavy metal levels are going to be higher than somewhere else. You mentioned leaky gut and um, kind of gut inflammation. And, you know, we just think about something simple like candida overgrowth. So just some imbalance in the microbiome. Too much of one bad thing, not enough of some good things. And this is so prevalent. Hundreds of millions of people are thought to be impacted. You know, we haven't collected stool samples of everyone in the country for obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, this is something that's so common and we don't really recognize it because we don't think to test for it. We don't think to test for heavy metal presence and gut inflammation and food sensitivities. Uh, so I kind of wonder, kind of continuing with our discussion from Monday, what our healthcare system will look like if we kind of started with what's the root cause of these symptoms and not treat the symptoms. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and not finding out how all these stimuli are, are affecting us and ultimately, you know, manifesting into these chronic diseases that we're seeing, you know, and rather than look at the symptoms of the diseases that are being created and trying to suppress the symptoms with the drugs, we need to look at these root causes and how we can help people identify them in their lives and mitigate them the best they can. Um, and, you know, something that everybody can control for the most part is diet. They can also, you know, somewhat control the toxin exposure. Um, they can, they can try and mitigate stress. They can do these things and it may be hard, but if you give them the alternative, which is just get sicker and sicker and sicker while we suppress symptoms, then I feel like if most people really understood the difference there, they would choose to, you know, make the changes, uh, to, to, to get better. For sure. And when we talk about all these things too, it's not just localized to, you know, a population of people who have different diseases or start to have signs and symptoms. This is everyone. I don't care if you're average Joe, if you're someone who's 50 pounds overweight, or, you know, an elite endurance athlete, ultra marathoner, all these things can make a difference, make an impact on you. Um, Even that kind of endurance athlete population, optimizing your mitochondrial health will pay dividends to your endurance performance. If you have dysfunction 
at the level of energy production, what do you think is going to happen when you go out and try and run and run and run? You know, there's a lot of things that we do that are really good, but not often are we rooted at that cellular level where everything begins, which is kind of ironic because we think back to like high school biology. And the first thing you learn is the cell. Everything starts at the cell. And then you look at how the world works as far as health is concerned. And we almost never consider the cell first. Exactly. Yeah. Everything's based on, you know, the symptoms and they're not looking at the foundation, which is the health of that cell. Right. So kind of continuing our talk with mitochondrial pathways, one of the best ways to optimize it is going through that AMP K PGC one alpha pathway. This is the pathway that we think of when we think of mitochondrial health, because we're promoting mitochondrial biogenesis. So the creation of new mitochondria, optimizing our metabolic health. This is the kind of things that we want to trigger. So how can we kind of go about our lives triggering this beneficial pathway? Yeah, so this pathway is basically what activates, you know, certain substrates, whether it's carbohydrate substrates or fatty acid substrates and allows us to use them, kind of pushes them into the direction of, hey, we're going to break this down. We're going to use this for energy. We're going to harvest the energy in these bonds and, and make ATP from them. Um, and so we want to kind of balance that. We don't really want to inhibit that. However, uh, it's curious because, you know, one thing that, you know, can inhibit that is actually giving your body too much energy. Um, and we think that, oh, we give it plenty of energy. That's going to give us this pathway plenty of opportunity to send these signals so that they can burn more energy and make more. But if we overwhelm the body with energy, um, just give it too much, then we end up inhibiting that process. Almost like the body's saying, no, we don't want this anymore. And a lot of that is because we break the mitochondria. You know, if we have a broken mitochondria, it can't use oxygen, then it's going to shut down the AMPK pathway um, because it's like, we can't take any more. You're going to have to do fermentation uh, at this point. And so, um, you know, the things that inhibit that could be, um, like we said, too much energy. And this, this is largely from processed foods because, you know, I'm going to steal from Ted Naiman here. He says, you know, that, and, and others, others before him too, when you're hungry, your body wants energy and it wants nutrients. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you're not going to feel full until you get enough of both of those. Right. So if we're eating foods that don't have enough nutrients in them, but have tons of energy, we're going to keep eating energy until our body feels like it gets enough nutrients. So I always give the example of, of a cupcake, very little amount of nutrients, nutrients, meaning like proteins, vitamins, minerals, things like that. Um, but tons of energy in the form of fats and carbohydrates, vegetable oils and carbohydrates. Um, and, uh, and so we keep eating those and you can eat a lot of cupcakes. People can experience this. They, they know they can eat like four cupcakes, you know? Um, but then steak, you can't, you can't eat too much of that. Your body lets you know when that's enough of that. Um, and it's because we're focusing on these foods that have very little nutrients. We're not satiated. We end up overwhelming our bodies with, with energy and that breaks our mitochondria, um, shuts down that pathway. Um, but then there's other things too, like inflammation, which can come from a lot of different sources. It can come from uh, stress. It can come from toxin exposure, um, those kinds of things. Endotoxemia, things we talked about, um, those kinds of things inhibit that pathway because they're breaking the mitochondria there. And, and so when the mitochondria is broken, your body is just like, stop, we can't do this. And it shuts down that pathway. And so that pathway being shut down um, is, is, is a marker for you know bad things down the road. Bad things are going to happen down the road. Right. And when we inhibit 
the AMPK PGC1 alpha kind of road, our body takes a different road that we call mTOR. So mm. mTOR is kind of our main anabolic pathway, which in some sense, like you said, we need a balance. We need some mTOR in the sense that we need protein synthesis. We need to build muscle mass, but overexpression of mTOR leads to a lot of things like cancer and other diseases that we're seeing such a huge problem with right now in the country. So it kind of makes sense that when we inhibit the good pathway that we need more of, and we activate the pathway that, you know, it's good in moderation, but if we send it into overdrive, bad things happen. Uh, it really kind of explains the root cause of a lot of our problems here in, uh, in America, as far as health concerns and society is concerned. Um, how would you recommend someone go about kind of balancing mTOR with AMPK? Because it's kind of a delicate balance. We need mTOR activation, but we can't have too much of it. Like I said, um, even taking someone who has cancer, for example, they need to inhibit mTOR to help reduce the growth of the cancer. But at the same time, you also need to increase protein synthesis because of something like cachexia. So breakdown of muscle tissue, which is very common with cancer. So how do we kind of go about balancing that fine line? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, in, in medicine and in medical research, uh, we tend to see things like, you know, mTOR activation and how if it's overactivated, um, you know, that can potentially lead to problematic things down the road. And we say mTOR is evil yep. and we want to say it, we need to suppress it at all costs, but we never think, and I say we, but, you know, collectively as a society, we don't think, well, it was there for a reason. Um, we need it for something um, just because we're overactivating it with our, with our poor lifestyles doesn't mean that we need to demonize it, you know? And so if we're talking about mTOR, yes, we definitely need it. And I'd say we need it um, to be happening every single day to, to promote growth and repair. Um, and so mTOR is activated by mainly by two things. One is amino acid like uh, leucine, mm -hmm. um, which is an amino acid, uh, you know, so amino acids are proteins. So we find that in things like red meat and, and protein sources. Um, but then it's also activated by insulin. Uh, and so we can do, we can eat two very different things and, and still activate mTOR. However, if we, if we activate it with insulin, the activation of mTOR is longer, like maybe three, four hours. Um, and, and, and also when we, when we eat things that stimulate insulin, it tends to make us hungry three, four hours later. So we do it again. Mm. Uh, and then we activate mTOR again for three, four hours. And then in three, four hours, we eat the same kind of thing because we're hungry again. Yeah. Uh, and so now we have mTOR activation all day long. Whereas if you look at the, the other thing, leucine, the amino acid, um, that we would find in, in um, good protein sources like animal foods, yep. that tends to uh, stimulate mTOR uh, a much shorter period of time. So like 30 yeah. minutes, uh, which is good. That's what we need um, to help growth and repair, um, especially you know if we're working out and we want to you know, rebuild and, and get stronger. Yep. Um, but also those types of foods are more satiating. Uh, and so so we don't we're not we don't end up eating those, you know, three hours three, four hours later, we, we, we tend to, people tend to like intermittent fast because those foods are more satiating. They're full of the right ratios of, of, of nutrients and, um, and energy. 
And so we get the stimulation of mTOR in the more appropriate amounts, right? So it, it really comes down to, you know, a proper, you know, kind of whole foods diet um, with correct ratios of energy and nutrients uh, that's going to create the necessary stimulation of mTOR, but not overstimulate it. And so when we talk about the things that overstimulate it, it comes back to the same things we've been harping on. It's the processed carbohydrates that spike insulin, and then it's the vegetable oils that break your metabolism so that you become insulin resistant. And that ends up with that ends up creating higher insulin long-term once you become insulin resistant. Uh, and so those types of things, those are the foods we need to stay away from if we're talking about balancing that AMPK and mTOR and, and uh, all these different um, physiologic you know, pathways that are happening. Right. And the thing I find kind of ironic about all this too, is we eat those foods. And like you said, we get that insulin spike and then crash. So mm -hmm. when we get that crash, if we can't eat, we typically resort to things like caffeine for energy, right? Uh, I think America is like one of the biggest over consumers of caffeine, like across the board. And now we start getting into adrenal fatigue. We also get into this attack on the pineal gland. So when you have insulin fluctuations throughout the day, insulin doesn't just store glucose, kind of like we talked about. It also drives serotonin into this place in your brain called the pineal gland. And serotonin is the precursor for melatonin. So now all of a sudden, we're having these random spikes of melatonin throughout the day. We're having these random kind of caffeine spikes throughout the day and our adrenals are getting fatigued. And this one little thing called metabolic dysfunction has caused dysfunction throughout the body. On Monday, we were kind of talking about the different specialties in medicine and how it's great that we have specialties, but they don't often look at the big picture and how everything interacts. And I think what we're talking about right now kind of speaks volumes to that. How, you know, one little thing, metabolic dysfunction, if, it, if you can't metabolize energy like you should, everything else is going to get thrown off. Um, and I think, again, this whole conversation has spoke volumes about that. And, you know, there's a lot deeper levels we can go here too. Uh, and I'm going to suggest people refer to your book for that, because just because we talk about things like insulin in this bad sense, you're going to look at research and you're going to look at textbooks and you're going to say, oh yeah, you know, when everything's functioning properly, you know, this is what it does. Life is good. And I don't think people realize how prevalent this dysfunction is. Like you said, only 12% of people are actually metabolically healthy. So while I can kind of pull up a pathway and kind of say, oh yeah, you know, well, insulin is going to inhibit the neuropeptide Y secreting neurons in the, uh, the uh, hypothalamus. And then the neuropeptide Y is going to inhibit the uh, paraventricular nucleus neurons. And that's going to have an effect on corticotropin releasing hormone. And that's going to suppress appetite. Like, yeah, that's all well and good in someone who's super healthy, but how many people fit that bill? You know, just because we read it like that and see that pathway doesn't mean that's how it is in real life. And we talked about that at length on Monday, too, with yeah. the case study example. Um, so, yeah, I think all kinds of awesome information is being shared here. And again, for those listening, you really need to go check out his book, Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ, because we're really just scratching the surface here today. So with that, Stefan, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners and any kind of final thoughts? Um, yeah, I think that, uh, I think that w one thing that, um, I think is necessary. We talked about this in, in the other episode is that, 
um, we need to spread the word, you know, if we're going to change things, yeah. um, then we need to spread the word. So oftentimes people, you know, listen to things, uh, and that's great. And they use that to affect their own life, but it's like, Hey, try and affect someone else's life too. Cause you may not have the reach, uh, of, of other people, but you can affect other people who are in your immediate life, you know? And, and so just keep spreading that word. Cause it's just going to pay it forward. Um, because that's how we're going to get things to change. So don't, don't keep this information quiet, you know? Yeah, for sure. So with that, make sure that you not only share these podcast episodes, but share Dr. Hussey's page. I try to share his posts different times to my stories because they're very beneficial and he does a great job at kind of synthesizing information in ways that anyone can understand. You know, he's got the high, the skills to take high level information and kind of make it simple. So anyone can understand it, even if you don't have a background in medicine. So if you don't already go follow his page, check out his information and, you know, just even resharing his posts can make a huge difference because you never know who's going to come across this information, who's going to land on his page, buy his book. Um, I've talked at length about his book, but it is literally the best book I've read on cardiovascular health and physiology. And for those that know me know that I have a pretty large library of almost a thousand books. And at one point I was reading a book a day. So I don't just mean this as someone who like, you know, reads once one book a year or something like I've been around the bushes a few times and I'm telling you, this is as legit as it gets. So go check out his stuff as always. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure you subscribe, share with a friend. And if you're listening on iTunes, please re uh, leave us a review. So with that, thank you. And we'll see you next week.